I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined once again by John Michael Seibler, and we're sharing Christmas gift ideas for that SCOTUS nerd in your life, and an interview with the man who literally wrote the book on appellate advocacy, Charles Rothfeld. But first, a few Supreme Court headlines. So first up, we have an answer to one of the sweet mysteries of life. How will the retired Justice Kennedy spend his retirement? And it appears that he's going to continue to spend a lot of his time at the court. On the 3rd, he sat in the court's VIP section to observe oral argument in a case involving federal retirement benefits, surely by happenstance. The case (laughs) is Dawson against Steger, where a former U.S. Marshal is challenging the state of West Virginia's allegedly disparate tax treatment of his retirement benefits. And after noting the passing of former President George H.W. Bush, Chief Justice John Roberts read some correspondence between the sitting justices and Kennedy into the record. In the first letter, the sitting justices thanked Kennedy for his service, saying, quote, We remain keenly aware of your absence on the bench and in our conference. We are heartened that you have maintained an active presence in the building, and we take great comfort that you remain our valued colleague here. The letter ends wishing Kennedy well in his retirement. And in a second letter from Kennedy to the sitting justices, Kennedy states, quote, This reply is not to say farewell. For it is my hope to linger here, to be with all of you in the days and years to come. Close quote. Kennedy concluded his letter thanking the justices for their gifts of guidance, understanding, and above all, the priceless bond of friendship. It, it sounds like Kennedy is definitely lingering around the court. And, Not going uh, anywhere. Yeah, the, the justices' letter to him sounds a bit like, all right, maybe it's time for you to head back to California, AMK. We're ready for you to go. (laughs) Time to enjoy that retirement. (laughs) Moving on, uh, the court GVR'd that's granted, vacated, and remanded Fleck versus Wetch in light of the Janus decision from last term. Janus is the case where the court held that public employees who opt out of union membership can't be forced to pay a fee for the cost of collective bargaining. The Fleck case involves the requirement that lawyers join a state bar association and pay dues in order to practice law in that state. Uh, The case comes from North Dakota. In 2014, Arnold Fleck, who is a lawyer, objected to the state bar association supporting a parental rights law that was on the ballot that year. Fleck argued that forcing him to support the bar association's political speech violates his First Amendment rights. So now the Supreme Court has instructed the lower court to take another look at the case in light of the Janus ruling. So if Fleck wins, do we not have to pay our bar dues anymore? That would be like 200 bucks in my pocket every year. That'd be nice. Go Fleck. (laughs) Uh, There was also an update on Carpenter against Murphy. The court asked for additional briefing in this case where a capital defendant argues that half of Oklahoma is actually Indian country. The court directed the parties to address two questions. One, whether any statute grants the state of Oklahoma jurisdiction over the prosecution of crimes committed by Indians in the area at issue in this case irrespective of the area's reservation status, and two, whether there are circumstances in which land qualifies as an Indian reservation, but nonetheless does not meet the definition of Indian country as set forth in the Major Crimes Act. The briefs are due Friday, December 28th, so Merry Christmas to all the parties involved in that case. And it sounds like the justices are looking for a creative way to solve this problem, although the state of Oklahoma has a pretty solid argument if you look at the series of laws Congress passed stripping the tribes in Oklahoma of every bit of sovereignty, plus the 111 years of post-statehood history. So in a rare move, this week the court closed on Wednesday, December 5th for President George H.W. Bush's funeral. It rescheduled the argument that would have taken place that day for Thursday, December 6th. 
The court is pretty famous for its independence when it comes to government shutdowns. For example, uh, when there are snow days and the court is scheduled to hear argument, the court uh, presses on with, uh, with, with the scheduled arguments. Luckily for the lawyers involved in the cases on Wednesday of this week, uh, they, they were only delayed by one day. Now, moving on to the funeral, several of the justices attended President Bush's funeral, including Chief Justice John Roberts, who had served as Principal Deputy Solicitor General during Bush's administration. Justice Elena Kagan was there, and of course, Justice Clarence Thomas, whom Bush had appointed to the Supreme Court. Moving on, are you wondering what to get that person in your life who loves the Supreme Court? (laughs) Well, here are a few gifts that should delight any SCOTUS nerd. First up, we have a badass babes candle with a drawing of Kagan, Sotomayor, and Ginsburg. It says, we bring the heat, and it's $28, which seems like a lot for a candle, but anyway. Uh, and it's available on a website called wildfang.com. We bring the heat. We, I love we it. We bring the heat. Another one for fans of these supreme ladies. Don't miss a squad goals mug. Only $15.99 at Look Human, another website that I've never heard of, but it has an entire section dedicated to RBG. There never seems to be a shortage of notorious gifts. Red Bubble is making throw pillows emblazoned with tiny pictures of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. These pillows start at $20 for a 16 by 16 pillow, but you should probably splurge. Uh, the, the 36 by 36 is only $50. Oh, yeah. Good price. <laughs> and if you prefer the originalist side of the bench, you can channel the newest justice, Brett Kavanaugh, with an I Like Beer t-shirt. It's only $14.95 on Etsy, and it comes in black or navy. You can also get ahead of the curve with a Dogma Lives Loudly, Amy Coney Barrett mug from our friends at the Least Dangerous blog. She may not be on the Supreme Court yet, but based on the buzz at the latest FedSoc convention, it may only be a matter of time. You can get a regular coffee mug or a travel mug, which is $24.95. Last up, something a little more serious. Don't miss Richard Brookheiser's new book, John Marshall, The Man Who Made the Supreme Court. Brookheiser writes... Before Marshall joined the Supreme Court, it was the weakling of the federal government, (laughs) lacking in dignity and clout. After he died, it could never be ignored again. Through three decades of dramatic cases, Marshall defended the federal government against unruly states, established the Supreme Court's right to rebuke Congress or the president, and unleashed the power of American commerce. For better and for worse, he made the Supreme Court a pillar of American life. The book is a steal at 19.49 on Amazon, and that's for the hardcover. Uh, happy shopping! And next up, an interview with Charles Rothfeld. Charles Rothfeld is special counsel at Mayor Brown. Charles, welcome to SCOTUS 101. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So you've argued more than 30 cases at the Supreme Court. What have been some of the most memorable arguments? Well, it's things that, that make the arguments memorable are not necessarily related to the importance of the case. Uh, One which sticks with me is my very first argument in Mm -hmm. the court, uh, which was actually my first argument anywhere. So (laughs) it it was sort of an intimidating process. And I was in the Solicitor General's office arguing it was probably the least important case of the year. Uh, The the question was whether particular kinds of letters that were sent to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission were proceedings within the meaning of the statute. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as as the middle of the argument, and Justice Powell, who was a very sort of courtly – you know, Southern gentleman says, excuse me, can I just interrupt you and ask you a question? Um, <laughs> that's so polite. <laughs> well, yeah, he, unlike the current justices, that's yeah. right. Uh, and he said, can you tell me when these letters come into the commission, do they get assigned numbers? Um, and, you know, all the preparation I had done, this is something that had never occurred to me and uh-huh. anybody that I was, that I was working with. Uh, and I did exactly the wrong thing. You know, you should never 
answer a question when you don't know the answer. But I thought, well, you know, in the government, everything gets a number stamped on it. And <laughs> so probably these do too. So I gave some kind of fuzzy answer that, well, I think probably they do or my understanding is they do. Uh, and as soon as I gave that answer, I was immediately panicked because I thought, well, maybe this is wrong. We're going to have to send an apology and a correction. <laughs> my first argument in the Supreme Court, and I, I, have, I have to take an answer back. How embarrassing. Uh, so the rest of the argument, I was I was terrified that I had done this, this committed this colossal error. So as soon as the argument was over, I went running out of the courtroom, you know, wearing my, my morning suit because in the Solicitor General's office, you wear these, you know, these 18th uh-huh. century suits, you know, and through the great hall of the court and all these tourists are looking at me thinking, who's this guy wearing this morning suit? Uh, and I met the, the commission's lawyer on the front steps of the court. And I said, can it do, in fact, these things get uh, numbers stamped on them? And he like looked at me and he said, well, we're the government. We stamp numbers on everything. Of course they do. Uh, <laughs> so your instincts were right. So my instincts were right, but it taught me a very valuable lesson, which is you should never, ever answer a question or say something when you're not absolutely sure that it's right. <laughs> Don't bluff before the justices. <laughs> um, so so that, that was a memorable experience. Um, do you have any rituals to help you prepare for arguments? Uh, I, I know that people do. People like eat salmon because they think it generates brain waves or something. Uh-huh. Um, but no, I mean, I, dr- I drink a cup of coffee and I try to get to the court on time. That's, that's, that's my ritual. <laughs> that's good enough. So you've worked on cases dealing with everything from uh, states criminalizing a suspected drunk driver's refusal to take a blood test, uh, a blood alcohol test, to the Federal Indian Child Welfare Act, to the Constitution's tonnage clause. What's your favorite area of the law? Well, I'm not sure I have a particular favorite. I mean, I have, have an affinity for the Dormant Commerce Clause. I've done a lot of cases on that. And it's mm-hmm. it's one of the areas where you can actually practice constitutional law as a, in private practice, uh, you know, unlike, you know, most things which are statutory. I mean, the, the Tonnage Clause, which which you mentioned, you know, I have a special affinity for that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, who even knew there was a Tonnage Clause in the Constitution? <laughs> uh, and the court has not struck down a state law under the Tonnage Clause since the uh, the mid 19th century until we got to our case. So, so to interpret it, you really had to go back to the original intent of the framers, to, to the mm-hmm. Federalist Papers and Madison's notes of the Constitutional Convention. You know, and that really determined the outcome of the case, it's, which is pretty unusual in this day and age. So That's I, music to my ears. Yeah, well. <laughs> so, uh, as you mentioned, you worked in the Solicitor General's office. This was in the mid 1980s. So, tell me about your experience and what was it like working for the legendary Rex Lee and Charles Freed. Well, it, Rex was was he's an iconic figure in the in the offices sort of mythology uh, mm-hmm. for for good reason. I mean, he was, he was a wonderful, wonderful man. I mean, he, he was you know incredibly decent and self-effacing, uh, and you know it, you know it's remarkable that somebody with his qualities got as high up in the government as he did. Uh, <laughs> and it, it, it's not true, I think, of many people who serve and you know, sort of claw their way to the top. But but Rex was really a remarkable. <laughs> A remarkable guy. And he also had, had, had a real vision for how the office should operate mm-hmm. in conformity with sort of the, the, the traditions of the office. And people have different views about how the Solicitor General should function. Uh, but, but Rex, I think, had it in mind that the office really had a, an obligation of, you know, of candor to the court mm-hmm. and, and to the executive branch. I mean, not just to the president that he was serving. So he was SG during a very difficult time for the office, in some ways similar to the current situation where there was a lot of political pressure and you know, people had very strong feelings in the administration about what they wanted the office to do. And, and Rex sort of maintained at, at a great personal cost to his career, I think, his, his principles. And, and as you say, I was in the SG's office sort of in the mid-80s in, in President Reagan's uh, end of his first term and into the second term. Um, 
and the, the argument process has transformed dramatically. When I was clerking and sort of the beginning of my time in the SG's office, it was possible to go through an argument and get very few questions. You could go for five minutes and not get a question. And wow. a, a lot of the argument preparation was actually coming up with things that you would say, you know, that when you'd start your argument, you might not get asked a question for a while. So you'd actually have to go on and sort of yammer away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and probably around the time that Justice Scalia joined the court, uh, that began to change. You know, he, of course, asked a lot of questions. And I think it was not just him, but but all the justices who joined the court after him, with the exception of Justice Thomas, are, <laughs> are extremely active in their questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it has completely changed how you prepare and how the argument goes forward. Um, so you're one of the founders of Yale's Supreme Court Clinic. Tell me about how you got involved in this and some of the highlights of, of working with the students at Yale. I uh, and uh, my partner at Mayor Brown, Andy Pincus, yeah, we're looking at the Stanford Clinic, which was the first of the law school clinics, which mm-hmm. is sort of part of this transformation of the, of the legal practice in the court and the creation of the Supreme Court bar that, you know, assures that sort of every case that gets to the court has, has experienced Supreme Court advocates representing them. Uh, you know, and Stanford began uh, – it was quite successful. And, you know, we had this pro bono practice with Mayor Brown, but we thought we should to try to bolster it mm-hmm. and sort of knew the people at Yale. We contacted Harold Coe, who was the dean at Yale at the time, and mm-hmm. they were very interested. You know, Yale, you know, people talk about how Yale Law School has, is an exceptionally academic place and has very little connection to the legal profession, uh, <laughs> which is true, uh, but it also has a very robust clinical program. Uh, so they were very very happy for us to get started. And, and it's, it's great. It's wonderful to deal with the students um, who have – they really test you on what you – think about cases and the way you approach cases. I mean, the problem with students is they're, they're always young and you're getting older and older and older every year. So uh, it, it makes you appreciate time is going by. But So you're also a judge for the National Association of Attorneys General's Best Supreme Court Brief Competition. How did you get involved in that? Well, after I left the ASG's office, I did some work for the State and Local Legal Center, which represents, as you can imagine, state and local governments in the court filing <laughs> yeah. amicus briefs. Uh, and so I got it. I, I became very involved on on the state and local side of a lot of these issues, uh, and, and which involves working with NAG, the, the Associate of Attorneys General, uh, and Dan Schweitzer, who is the, uh, the Supreme Court Director of their program, just invited yeah. me to start uh, participating in these uh, best brief competitions, and it was an interesting thing to do. So, what tips do you have for any lawyers uh, who might be listening who are in state AG's offices? I wouldn't give them tips that are, are different from how other lawyers operate. I, I think that, you know, a good brief has to take account of who's reading it and you have to put yourself in the, in the position of the reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, judges and law clerks are very busy. They have lots of papers zooming across their desk. And so you have to be very user-friendly. You have to write in a way that engages them very in a, in a conversational way. Mm-hmm. Um, be very organized in the presentation. You know, have lots of subheads because people have short attention spans. So you mentioned that early in your career you clerked for Justice Harry Blackman. Tell me about what that experience was like. That was probably the best job I've ever had. Um, it was a very intense experience. The Blackman clerks were notorious for working exceptionally long hours because the, the justice had the clerks going to do a little bit of everything. They would do pull memos and bench memos and work on the opinions and, mm-hmm. and work, look at, review other chambers, bench memos and pull memos. Um, so we would get to the court at eight in the morning and have breakfast with the justice every, every day, five, oh, five nice. days a week. Uh, and we'd stay till midnight uh, on Monday through Friday. And 
would work Saturday and Sunday. I took Christmas Day off was the only day that I took off during the course of oh, the wow. year. Oh, wow. Uh, so it was an incredibly intense experience, yeah. uh, but it was it was a wonderful experience because mm-hmm. you know, being in the court and Justice Blackman was a wonderful employer, a really modest, self-effacing guy. Mm-hmm. Um, when I interviewed with him for the job, he he said, "Well, you, you're not the first person I interviewed, but don't feel badly about that. I was just I was President Nixon's third choice." So. <laughs> um, so there's an extensive collection of his papers that have been published. And there's also an interview series that's 38 hours long, uh, conducted by uh, Harold Coe, who you mentioned earlier, who was another former law clerk. Have you have you read all the papers and and, and watched the, th- the 38 hours? I, I have watched some of the 38 <laughs> hours, not not the entire 38 hours. Uh, the papers are a remarkable collection. Justice Blackman was a real pack rod, and so everything that came into his chamber, I mean, literally everything, you know, na- nasty letters, everything, <laughs> he he filed away in a very organized way, uh, and they're now in the Library of Congress. Very well organized. And so if you ever are in Washington and have some time on your hands, you can just go to the Library of Congress and any case that you're interested in, they will give you the original documents. And they're fascinating because they're an internal look at how the court operates. Yeah, really, really a great service uh, for the American people to get a glimpse into the inner workings of the Supreme Court. So I recently read that uh, he portrayed Joseph Story in the the Steven Spielberg Amistad movie in 1997. He did, yes. Did you know this? That's I, so cool. <laughs> no, he, he uh, it, it, yes, so he had an acting career. Um, and, and in addition, another movie connection, Harold Coe, his former clerk when he was dean at Yale Law School, Spielberg filmed the um, Indiana Jones sequels in New Haven mm-hmm. uh, at the Yale Law School as a, st- a stand-in for, um, for, for Indiana Jones College. Mm-hmm. And Harold had a picture of Justice Blackman put on the wall of the you know, one of the academic offices that Spielberg filmed. So if you look very closely in <laughs> Indiana Jones and the, sort of the second round of Indiana Jones, you will see a picture of Justice Blackman. On okay, I'm going to have to go look for that and uh, and find it. So what advice do you have for law students or lawyers who are just getting started in their careers? Uh, I would give them two contradictory pieces of advice. <laughs> uh, the best kind. Uh, the, the, the first is... You know, they should think carefully so about what they're interested in doing. You know, do they really want to be lawyers in the first place? I think a lot of people used to go to law school just because they couldn't figure out what else to do. Um, and yeah. that's probably less true now because it's become more expensive. But but still, yeah, people, I think, find themselves practicing law and wondering why they got into it and do they really want to do it <laughs> uh, and sort of what aspects of the practice they like and don't mm-hmm. like. So I, I think it, it pays to think about it in advance, kind mm-hmm. of think it through um, and – if, there's, if you know what it is that you're interested in, try to figure out how you're going to get there. The other contradictory bit of advice that I would give is uh, you should not shy away if some, something's un- unexpected but interesting comes along to, to follow it. I mean, you know, at, at the Yale Clinic, the one thing we do is bring in kind of luminaries to talk to the students. Uh, you know, the, the former uh, chief judge of the D.C. Circuit and and, mm-hmm. and you know, other people have done really interesting things. And, and it, it's a very surprising number of them say that it was just sort of serendipity that got them to where they were. They were doing something and somebody came along and said, hey, would you like to try this? And they did it and it led them off in a completely different way. So if you have an interesting prospect that's put in front of you, you should, you should be inclined to, to follow it up. Seize the day. <laughs> yeah. Well, one final question, something we ask all of our guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Well, uh, I, I, w- I would be interested in talking to Thurgood Marshall um, about his career before he was on the court, actually. I mean, he had, yeah. of course, a fascinating, you know, 
groundbreaking historic career uh, as a litigator, uh, you know, leading through Brown versus Board of Education and, and, and past that. Um, and I, he was on the court when I was clerked, and so I, I dealt with him a little bit. But I think it would be interesting to, to talk to him about how he kind of transformed the law outside of the court. Yeah, that would be great. Well, Charles, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Christmas edition. I'm going to try to stump John Michael. Are you ready? Fire away. All right. First question. In Lynch v. Donnelly, where the court ruled that a town's Christmas display did not violate the Establishment Clause, there were several Christmas items in the display. I'm going to give you a list of things, and I want you to tell me which of the following was not in the Christmas display. Okay. A nativity. Santa's house. A poinsettia, a Christmas tree, and several reindeer. <laughs> well, those things would all make sense to be in a Christmas display. Um, the nativity scene, reindeer, mm-hmm. and a Christmas tree mm-hmm. were probably all in it. And what were the other two? Santa's Santa's house oh. and a poinsettia. Or poinsettia. Do I'll I always say it wrong? Santa's house was not there. Mm, no, Santa's house was oh. was featured in the display along with the reindeer, um, and it was it was the the poinsettia. The poinsettia wasn't there. Who, yeah, how can you have a Christmas display without a poinsettia? All right. <laughs> Next question. This is an international one. In this country, Supreme Court justices wear scarlet robes trimmed with ermine, which looks a bit like Santa's suit. So what is the? Do you want to? Do you want a hint? Yes. It's north of us. <laughs> is it Canada? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and if you if you look, how far north would yeah, I have to yeah. go? <laughs> yeah, they really look like they are ready to help Santa out. Huh. I'm gonna have to check that out. Next, what caused the court to cancel its holiday party in 1947? Hmm. 1947. Fire? Oh, that's a that's a good guess. But it was a dispute over whether to allow the court's messengers, who were all African-American, to attend the party. So here's a bit of backstory. Oh. The justices, secretaries, and law clerks would throw the party together, and the clerks wanted to include all of the employees, including the messengers. The secretaries did not want to do that. The justices met in a private conference to discuss the situation, and Chief Justice Fred Vinson and Justices Hugo Black and Stanley Reed were in favor of allowing the messengers to attend. Uh, Justice Robert Jackson objected in part because he didn't think that the clerks should use a social event at the court to, quote, make a demonstration out of one of the country's greatest social conflicts of that time. Mm Justice Felix Frank's Frankfurter proposed, and this is kind of Scrooge-like, he proposed banning all social functions at the court aside from the justice's own functions. Ultimately, the court couldn't make a decision, so they opted not to have a party at all. Wow. Interesting yeah. story. Yeah. Okay, final question. <laughs> this is a bit whimsical, and it's another international one. This country's Supreme Court blocked a major highway project in part so that the government could determine its impact on elves. Its impact on elves? <laughs> <laughs> is this 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 is a, a a real a real issue? Yeah. This isn't like building the greenhouses uh, in some Arctic tundra <laughs> in the Weyerhaeuser case. <laughs> yeah. Unlike uh, we have goofy uh, the dusky gopher frogs in this country has elves. Oh. So am I guessing the country? Yes. 
It's an island uh, nation. I'm going to guess Iceland. You are correct. <laughs> um, elf advocates joined environmentalists to block construction of a highway through a lava field that would disturb a 30-ton boulder that was alleged to be an elf church. Also known as Huldefolk, or hidden people, it's unclear if these are the same creatures as Santa's helpers. <laughs> well, Jam, I think you did a pretty good job, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm impressed that you got the Iceland question. Uh, they have some very strange Christmas traditions. They, they do indeed. Well, thank you for joining me, and thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101. You can also email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org. Americans have almost entirely forgotten their history. That's right, and if we want to keep our republic, this needs to change. I'm Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. We host The Right Side of History, a podcast dedicated to restoring informed patriotism and busting the negative narratives about America's past. Hollywood, the media, and academia have failed a generation. We're here to set the record straight on the ideas and people who've made this country great. Subscribe to The Right Side of History on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher today.